Musar, as most of you know, is what I call practical sanctification. A couple of resources. This book is excellent. It's called Everyday Holiness by Alan Morinis, M-O-R-I-N-I-S. And you can get it on Amazon. You can also get it on Kindle. I'm doing some stuff that's not in the book. It's consistent with what's in the book, but it's slightly different. And a resource for you there is my website, which is crimsonthread.com. And if you go to articles and you pick architecture of the soul, everything we did last week is there written up. Also, there's audio from a few years back that's recorded there. So if you're looking to get the diagrams I'm using, any of that kind of stuff, you can get those on my website. We went over some basics last time, and I will go through those really quickly this time, again, to help get everybody on the same sheet of music. As I said last time, the Jews, God bless them, have been in exile now for 2,000 years. And they will tell you that the reason that they are in exile this time is because of baseless hatred, which is to say they couldn't get along with each other. And exile is therapeutic. So when they went into idolatry, God said, okay, fine, we're going to do idolatry. We'll send you to Babylon for a while. Idol central. You guys can't get along with each other and you baseless hatred, fine, we'll do baseless hatred for 2,000 years. And you had pogroms, you had the Holocaust, and just all the baseless hatred of the Jews until that gets wrung out of them. One of the reactions to that has been Musar, and they've been studying this for a thousand years. This book here is very readable and accessible, less Hebrew than most, but it's a long tradition. And the idea here is, how do you change your basic nature? As I said last time, everybody is born out of balance. These are the 13 attributes. They're called medot or measurements. And I've got my little diagram. And at the top, I've got God's light. And at the bottom of that, I've got other people. And by the way, you can get this on my website if you want to. The louvers in between represent you. And the way I've got my little diagram set up, is the yellow areas are transparent and the blue areas are opaque. So if you're dealing with someone, and let's say that the first one, humility, humility can either be positive or negative, in other words, pride or self-abasement. And let's say that's pride. If you are proud and arrogant, then you get in God's way and God can't use you to reach other people because you're in his way. So the idea of Musar is to get these little yellow sliders sort of lined up so that God can work through you and you're not in his way. One of the things that you will discover is as you get yourself lined up, things will go a whole lot better for you. So it isn't really self-help or self-improvement per se. The idea is to get out of God's way. But when you start doing things God's way, what you discover is your life goes a whole lot better also. Now, as I said before, anybody that has children knows that when they come out of the womb, every one of them is different, and every one of them has different strengths and weaknesses and predilections, and they're just born that way. 
the fact that you are out of balance is not itself sinful. But the fact that you're out of balance may lead you to sin. God made you that way. And by the way, that's not a defect, that's a feature. He made you that way on purpose. And so your goal as you go through life is to work on those areas of imbalance to bring them into balance so that you become a more useful tool in God's hands. So now the question becomes, how do you do that? We went through this last time, and again, I will go through it quickly. It is also on my website. The architecture of the soul has this diagram and the write-up that I did last time. That's a functional diagram of a human being. Conceptually, that's how everybody's built. And the little cloud up there on the right represents the spiritual world. By the way, all these terms are biblical. All of this is in the Bible. It's just scattered all over, and what I'm doing here is I brought it all together in one place. But you can find all of this stuff in Scripture. So the neshama, if you will, is your connection to God. And of course, what happened when we ate of the wrong fruit is this white arrow, which is your spiritual connection, got kind of fuzzed up. Doesn't work as well as it's designed to work. And that's our problem. And one of the things that you're doing throughout your life is you're trying to get that strengthened. Below the neshama, which you would normally call the spirit, below that is the soul, and the soul consists of three of these boxes. You've got the yellow box that I call the nephish, God calls the nephish. You've got a sort of a greenish blue box, which I've called the conscious mind, and then I've got this brown box, which is called the ruach. So those three boxes together form what Christians would call the soul. And then, of course, over to the right, in brown is the body, the clay. So if you spend much time hanging around Christian churches, you hear about body, soul, and spirit. What I've done is I have broken those out so that they're more useful. Now, the ruach down at the bottom is what I call a hardware abstraction layer, which is to say that's the thing that connects what you want to do with the clay. And the example I used is, I can have my hand here and I can say, all right, go up, you hand up, 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 notice it's not doing anything. Then I do this and I have no idea what I did. When I want my hand to go up, I can make it go up, but looking at it and saying move doesn't do the trick. This lives in the Ruach. In other words, there's all sorts of muscles that need to fire, things happen to have, have to happen in a sequence. All of that has to work together in a certain order for my hand to go up. If I had to think about that every time I wanted to raise my hand, I would never get anything done. So that is abstracted into this area we call the Ruach. And we aren't going to be terribly concerned with that right now. In between is the nephish and the conscious. And last time I had those labeled, the nephish is what you believe, the conscience is what you think you believe. Everyone has ideas about what they think they believe. But your nephish generally has other ideas. And your nephish will win over the long haul. And by the way, psychology, it's not a very good mental model. Psychology would call your nephish the unconscious mind. That's a lousy model. Don't write that down, but just to sort of orient you. We've got a bunch of arrows on this diagram besides the white one. I've got really, really heavy, strong red arrows from the nephish to the neshama and from the nephish to the ruach. 
And then I have got much lighter yellow arrows from the conscious mind to the neshama and to the ruach. So the conscious mind is the part of you that you have access to. So as I'm sitting here talking to you and you're thinking and you're listening, that's all happening in your conscious mind. I can say I believe anything I want in my conscious mind and I am operating on the yellow arrows. If my nephesh agrees, the red arrows kick in and they'll really make it happen. If my nephesh doesn't agree, over a period of time, those heavy red arrows will overcome the lightweight yellow arrows. So let me give you an example. And I'll give you an example both ways. These are examples I used last time. You've all seen a little kid who's at a swimming pool. And he's watching everybody go off the high dive and having a great time. Cool, I'm going to go off the high dive. He goes up to the top, gets out to the end, and all of a sudden you just see him lock up. That's because the yellow arrows in his conscious mind says, boy, that's really going to be fun, I'm going to go do that. When he gets up to the end of the diving board, his nephew says, you're not going to take another step or we'll die. And it will literally lock him up. So the nephew with its red arrows overcomes the conscious mind with its yellow arrows. Now what the kid may decide is he looks at all of his friends standing around there watching him, and he says, if I crawl down there, everybody is going to laugh at me and I'll never live this down. So the other thing that's going on in my nephew is I have a certain degree of self-image and pride that i got to maintain here. Death before dishonor. And off he goes. You've all seen that phenomenon. And that's the difference between these heavy red arrows and the lighter yellow arrows. Spiritually, same thing. I can come into you and I can read scripture and I can pray and I can say, by the stripes of Messiah you are healed, be healed. If you believe me, you will be operating on the red arrows and your body will respond. If you look at me and say, yeah, 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 but I'm really sick, then you're operating on the yellow arrows and your body will not respond. All right, so everybody understand the diagram. We're going to talk about the nephesh as if it's a problem. The nephesh is part of what God designed in you. It is your stability. It is your self-image. It is designed to change slowly. Because if every time you had a new idea, your nephesh changed and went off in another direction, you would be what is known as unstable as water. So. As we're going through this, we are trying to change the nephesh in certain areas because of this imbalance that we talked about earlier. So as you go through an accounting of your soul and you discover areas where you are in unbalance, that becomes your curriculum. And what you want to do is begin a program to bring those areas back into balance. Your nephesh is going to resist you because your nephesh wants to be what you are. And so I'm presenting the nephesh as if it's an obstacle, but understand it is simply a rock. And it just takes a lot to move a rock. The rock in itself is not necessarily bad unless it's in the wrong place. And then if the rock's in the wrong place, it becomes a problem and it's hard to move. But if the rock's in the right place, you want it there because it's your foundation. Same rock. That, in 25 words or less, is what we went through last time. One other thing. The nephesh does not care about right and wrong. 
right and wrong are vehicles of the conscious mind. You read scripture, you listen to the word of God, you say, this is right, that's wrong. That is a conscious mind function. Nephish don't care. Nephish cares about true and false. Is it true of me that I am generous? If it is true of me that I am generous, then I will give. Is it true of me that I am courageous? If it is true of me that I am courageous, then I will act in a brave manner. If it is not true of me that I am courageous, then I won't. And no matter whether I think it's right or wrong that I should be courageous, Nephish don't care. It simply wants to know, is it true of me that this situation is what it is? So when you argue with your nephew using logic and all that kind of stuff, nephew just looks at you like a dumb rock because it doesn't hear any of that. For those of you who are rumbling around my website, you may want to go to Topical and go to Demons 101. And that talks about a lot of what, how do we get demons into us? What do they do? How do they affect us? What is their role in all this? I don't want to particularly go through that right now because that's another hour or so discussion. When you get born again, what happens is right and wrong becomes real to you. And you get an urge and a desire to change. In fact, in some of that process, you may shed a whole bunch of demons, which is all wonderful stuff. Doesn't change your nephew. Who you are doesn't change. Who you belong to does change. What you've done is you've changed sides, you've changed allegiance, you have joined the kingdom of God and you've come out of the kingdom of darkness and death. Cool. Welcome aboard. Delighted to have you. But as I say, if you were fat, bald, and stupid before that happens, you're going to be fat, bald, and stupid immediately after it happens. The Musar program then gives you a way systematically to work through aligning yourself to the image of God or aligning yourself to the image of Christ. And that is what's called sanctification, and that takes a lifetime. All right, moving right along. So how do you communicate with the nephish? The nephish doesn't listen to reason. The nephish doesn't pay attention to right and wrong. The nephish pays attention to authority. So, for example, as a little child, your parents are your authority. And everybody in here has got stuff that their parents told them that was wrong that they're still operating on. And my classic example is my mommy told me at a very young age, Johnny, you can't sing. And for decades thereafter, I couldn't sing. Ray has helped me a little bit. Still not great, but I at least don't care anymore. The fact that I can't sing is y'all's problem, not mine anymore. But my mommy told me that at a very young age, and she was my authority figure. My mommy told me at a very young age, you don't drink with your meals because it dilutes your digestive juices. To this day, I do not drink with my meals. My mommy told me not to. Authority, that's the first thing that the nephish responds to. And advertising depends on this. Four out of five doctors say that if you take this pill, that won't fall off. That's an appeal to authority. And what they're trying to do is bypass your conscious mind, go through your ears, into your nephish, and create a demand for that product. Emotion is another one. The nephish responds to emotion. And the example I've used, most of you as little kids have had to stand up in class and give a book report. If you give a book report and everybody laughs at you, I guarantee you for the rest of your life, speaking in front of people will be a terrifying event. Because 
you have an emotional reaction to that. Your nephish understands emotions, images. Your nephish responds to images. And the example I used was playing golf. I don't play golf, but several of you do. One of the things that a professional golfer will do will be stand there and close his eyes before a long shot. And in his mind, he'll make a little movie and he'll see that ball going just exactly where he wants it to go. And when the ball is doing what it wants to in his imagination, notice imagination, image, that's what imagination means, image. When he gets his imagination lined up, he will then take the shot and the ball will most of the time go exactly where he wants it to go. So you can communicate with your nephish by creating little movies in your head. You want to become more generous. Close your eyes, visualize you're walking up and putting money in the collection box. You're walking up and giving money to a stranger. Visualize that. See yourself doing it. That communicates with your nephish. Hear it. Nephish operates through the ears. So, for example, anybody have radio on all day as you're doing stuff around the house? You've opened up your ears and people pour stuff in, and most of the time it bypasses your filter because you're not really paying attention to it. It's just noise. Well, that noise is bypassing your conscious mind and going straight to your nephish. That's why people at the age of 40 suddenly start having these weird symptoms because they've been told after the age of 40, this is going to start happening to you. And commercials are always slightly louder. That's trying to bypass your conscious mind, bypass your reason and your filter, and go straight into your nephew so that it changes your behavior. And then repetition. Practice makes perfect or bad practice really makes you really lousy. Doesn't matter whether you're practicing well or poorly, Practice will make you be what you practice. So you really want to practice doing stuff right as opposed to practice doing it wrong because practice will set itself in your nephish good or bad. Interestingly, they did an experiment with college basketball players and they divided them into three groups. They started all three groups off and they gave them coaching on shooting free throws. One group continued to practice shooting free throws. Another group did nothing. And then the third group visualized shooting free throws without going onto the basketball court. So one group, every day, shows up at the basketball court and practices free throws. Another group just goes off and does nothing until they come back together. Third group just sits there and closes their eyes and imagines shooting free throws. The group that actually practiced did the best. The group that visualized practicing without actually doing any shooting was almost as good. Not quite, but almost as good. And then the ones that didn't do anything showed no improvement. So visualization and repetition are ways of communicating with your nephish. So first off, visualization, what's called here the theater of the mind. And that's where you get an image of the change you want to have happen. And you spend some time with your eyes closed, creating a little movie, if you will, in your imagination of you doing the thing that you want to start doing. Contemplation. This would be meditation, where you sit and you wrestle with a thought. Not quite as good, but not bad. And then chant. Chant is really good because you are combining repetition and you're using emotion. So you're saying something that you want to say, but you're saying in a way that is emotional 
and goes into your neckage. And that will accelerate the change you want to make. All right, three stages to change. The first one is sensitivity. Become aware of what you want to change. As I said last time, the fact that you're all sitting here in a church is an indicator that a lot of you are doing a lot of stuff right. So it is not the case that everybody has got to root everything out and start afresh. Most of what you're doing is okay. But there are things that everybody wants to change, me very much included. First stage is becoming aware. We'll talk about how you do that in just a minute. Second step is self-restraint. For a while, you're going to have to operate on those wimpy yellow arrows. Compared to the red arrows, which are about four times as heavy in my little diagram, they are not as powerful and persistent as the same arrows from the nephish. And part of that is because the nephish never gives up. The conscious mind sort of loses its focus, goes on to thinking about something else, doesn't follow through all that. The nephish never gives up, which is why you can override for a, for a short period of time using willpower, but you cannot affect permanent change using willpower. You used to smoke. I gave up smoking several times. Really easy to give up smoking. Staying giving up smoking is what was hard. And the thing that finally tipped me over to give me, I was in Vietnam and I just came out of a gunfight. And I said, those people are trying to kill me. Why am I helping? And I never picked up a cigarette again. Significant emotional event. So deciding to give up smoking, anybody can do that. But my nephew had, you're a smoker. And it would always figure out a way to uh, sabotage me. Until I had a really significant emotional event. And I whoa. I ain't going to do that anymore. And I didn't. I haven't had a cigarette since. Emotion is only one of the tools. I mean, there are five tools I've got listed up there. Emotion is only one of them. So you've got a total of five arrows in your quiver that you can use. I'm simply giving you an example of emotion and how that works. There are other things you can use. So then the third stage is transformation. And what you're trying to do is get beyond willpower. It is true of me that I am not a smoker. I have no desire to smoke. Smoking is not something that ever crosses my radar. I don't have to use any willpower whatsoever not to smoke because I am no longer a smoker. That's what you want to get to, where it is true of you that this character trait that you want to get adjusted is balanced the way you want it to be. And when that becomes the case, then willpower no longer factors into it. It's simply your nephish now keeps that self-image of you in play as opposed to the old one that you changed. So sensitivity. Remember I just showed three stages. Sensitivity, self-restraint, and talk about sensitivity. Rabbi Dessler, and it's in this book also, talks about bekarah, which means decision points. And the rabbis have a saying, if someone does something three times, it is no longer a sin for him because there's no longer a struggle. Once you've done something three times, that is something that you no longer struggle with because you have already given up on that area. And the way he describes it is as a battlefront. The battle takes place along a line. There is stuff in the back area 
on both sides that is not really in play. So the places where you are actually struggling with a decision is called here uh, Bechara, and that's the point where you're struggling with something. You may lose that struggle or you may win that struggle. What his point is, struggle with it twice, the third time you quit struggling. The battle line has moved in the direction of the enemy in that area. And it's no longer in play because that's just what you do now. So the thing that you want to do is you want to train yourself so you recognize those decision points. You recognize when you are on the battlefront in this area and you recognize that you have a decision to make. Because if you fail the third time, it will no longer come up as an active decision for you. Sensitivity is learning to recognize those decision points. And we'll show you how to do that in a few minutes. Don't, don't get lost. Self-restraint. What you're doing there is moving the front lines, if you will. I talked about this briefly last time. Become aware of the seeds of your actions. And I will use an example that some of you have heard me use before. I used to have a terrible, terrible problem with resentment. When I was a consultant, some client would not pay on time. And I would just really get angry. And I would take a walk in the afternoon, just minding my own business, not paying any attention. And all of a sudden, I would just be in this purple rage. How did I get there? And I would be just really angry. And so I started paying attention to my mental state as I walked. And I would see the seed get planted. The typical seed was somebody hadn't paid me on time. And I would see that, and then I would watch the sequence of events happen until I finally got to the point where I was just furious. And what I discovered is that initial point still comes up today. But I've learned to recognize that initial point, and I look at it and say, no, stop. I'm not going to go down that path. You've all seen those funnel cone spiders, or a better one is an ant lion, where you've got the cone in the sand and bugs are walking around and they step into that cone and all of a sudden the path is always down and at the bottom you've got the spider or the ant lion just waiting for you. What you need to do is recognize where the edge of that cone is. What I learned to do was recognize where the edge of that cone was for me. And then, while I'm still up here with one foot on safe ground and I haven't started going down the cone, I can stop it. When I get down to the bottom, I can't stop it anymore. When I say become aware of the seeds of your action, when you find yourself in a situation that you really regret being in, stop a minute and go back and retrace the steps. How did I get here? And what you'll be able to do it takes practice, it doesn't happen the first time, but what you'll be able to do is you'll be able to recognize, ah, that's where this particular change starts. And back here where it's just beginning, I can stop it. What I can't stop it is down at the bottom when I'm facing the spider. So self-restraint here is in terms of becoming aware of your own mental processes. And that takes some auditing. Sometimes you'll have to backtrack from a bad situation. You're in this bad situation and you realize, 
I really don't like it down here, and I really would like not to be here again. The beginning of the path out is to backtrack and figure out how you got there. What was the mental calculus that you went through that started you on that path? And as I said, I no longer have a problem with resentment because I recognize when it starts. And I recognize where it's going to go. And when I was down in that pit on my walk, oh, it just felt so good. I mean, I was righteously angry. I was really righteously indignant. Oh, it was emotionally satisfying. But it was sterile because it didn't lead to anything good. And I decided that I don't want to go there anymore. So I don't, because I recognize where the path starts. So learn to think about what you're thinking about. Set yourself a century and watch your own thoughts and audit them so that you know what the path is that gets you to places where you don't want to be. Transformation. The psalm is turn from evil and do good. Turning from evil is the first part. You want to stop doing bad stuff. But the thing that affects transformation is doing good. And the way the rabbis tell you to do that is focus on complementary traits. So let's go back to our little stick diagram. Let's say that I have a problem with pride. Well, teaching myself humility is hard. So instead of focusing on making myself more humble, what I can do is I can focus on honor. And honor is something I give to other people. So when I give other people honor or give God honor, instead of trying to back off on my pride, if I focus on increasing the honor I give to other people, what happens is my pride will come back into balance, but I'm not trying to tune my pride down. I am trying to increase a complementary measurement that's much more powerful than trying to stop doing something that's part of your nephish. If you move to a complementary medot and increase that, what the increase in that will do will be to tone down the one that you want to change. The way this book is organized, if you choose to use the book, you don't need to use the book, but if you choose to, the way it's organized is in three parts. The first part is sort of introduction, which we did last time and some this time. Part two is a chapter on each one of the medot. There's a chapter on humility, a chapter on gratitude, so that you can understand what each of those looks like and what is meant by each of those medot. And then the third section is exercises on how to change. I'm sort of mixing them all together in one lecture, but he's got part one, two, and three, and the middle section, which is the measurements, or the me measurement just medot, same thing, the measurements tell you what it is that makes up each one of those things. And from that, you can start figuring out what complementary things would be. What I asked you to read about, for those of you who were here last time, is to read about humility, which in Hebrew is Habanah. Humility is not what most people think. You know, you're all familiar with Moses is a very humble man, more so than any other man on earth. Well, Moses was used directly by God. He was the leader of the Hebrew people. He caused the earth to open up and swallow people alive. Yet, he was described as humble. So we need to get that reconciled.
Matthew, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Yeshua is described as humble. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he is described as humble. So humility doesn't mean what most people think it means. Notice the trait is humility, not pride. Pride is an inappropriate focus on yourself. Humility, then, is having the same view of yourself that God has of you. Humility is also taking up the proper amount of space in the world. Let's take our current president. Mr. Trump is a humble man. He is taking up the amount of space in the world that we elected him to take up. Now, the fact that all sorts of people around him are really upset with him is their problem. We elected him to take up a lot of space. When the chairman of the board walks into a board meeting, he is expected to be the center of attention. That is his role. If he walks into a board meeting and then just sort of slinks over and sits in a corner against a chair, he is not taking up the proper amount of space in that room. Judge Kavanaugh. In his courtroom, he takes up a great deal of space because that's what he's supposed to do. You all seen in the news reports, after he got nominated to the Supreme Court, he went to a homeless shelter and fed the homeless as he does every week. And in that situation, he takes up very little space. He's just a guy that's ladling out soup. It would not be appropriate for him to stand up with his judicial robes and start throwing things around under those circumstances. The amount of space he should have in that circumstance is standing behind the line ladling soup. The amount of space he should take up in his courtroom is very big. He's the judge. He's in charge. So humility is recognizing how much space you should take up in every situation and taking up that amount of space, no more, no less. If you've got a problem with pride, what happens is in every situation you try and take up more space than you should. Let's go to the other end of the scale. On one end, you've got arrogance. And that is trying to take up more pride than you should in every situation. I always want to be the center of attention. I always want to be in charge. I always want to be the one who's doing everything. That's arrogance. The other end of that is self-debasement, where you don't take up the amount of space that you're supposed to. Both of those are pride. Either end of that spectrum is pride, which is an inordinate focus on yourself. Whether your image is negative of yourself or positive of yourself, an inordinate focus on yourself is a function of pride. You're supposed to be in the range between pride and humility, somewhere in there. How you behave in any situation depends on your role. But you are always wanting to be a humble person. Moses was a humble person in all circumstances, yet he had no problem splitting the sea and drowning the Egyptian army because that was the thing that he was supposed to do under those circumstances. He continued to be humble even though he was doing magnificent things. So, two things. Write these down on your heart. Behavior reveals the nephesh, thinking does not. Actions change the nephesh, thinking does not. Now, what I said last time, and I'll say again because it's worth repeating, the Jews have a saying, don't tell me what you believe. 
Let me watch you for a while, and then I'll tell you what you believe. Your actions reveal what is in your nephesh. You can't think about it. You can't introspect. You can't gaze at your navel and figure out what's in your nephesh. The only way you're going to figure out what's in your nephesh is to watch what you do. And the only way you're going to change what's in your nephesh is by action or behavior. Thinking about it, lecturing it, all that kind of stuff will not change. So what we're going to work on this week is humility. Now, there are 13 or 14 of these medote in this book. And what we'll do is we'll go through one each week. And what you're going to do is you're going to start each day with an affirmation. You get up in the morning. Your affirmation will depend on what direction you think you need to move. If you've got a problem with arrogance, you start the day with, I am but dust and ashes. If you have a problem with low self-esteem, you start the day with, Christ died for me. You choose. If you don't like those two, pick two other ones. These are suggestions. If you've got something else in Scripture that you like better, by all means, use whatever you like better. But start with one of these. And then what you do is you go through the day and you have your antenna out and you watch what happens to you during the day. Just pay attention to what happens to you. And then at night, before you go to bed, sit down with just a notebook like what Tom's got there and simply write down your observations. What will happen is, as you go through a week, what your observations will show you is, in fact, where you are on the spectrum of humility. Your actions will reveal it to you. You might be just fine. Everything may be okay. But as you go to the next one, and the next one, and the next one, as you keep a week's diary, what you'll find is somewhere down around honor or gratitude or something, you'll have something twig you that says, oh, wait a minute, that applies to humility. So as you learn more about these things, you will backtrack on some of it because you'll become more sensitive.